Well, January 1st, 2017. Happy New Year, everybody. I know that we've already said that a couple of times, but I just want to wish you a a happy new year because my hope is absolutely that this year would be happy for you. And I would hope that you would want the same for me. So I love the fact that we can express this to each other because at the end of the day, all of us want to be happy, right? All of us want this next year to be full of happiness. And what oftentimes brings happiness to us or where we find joy in is things that are new. And so this new year that we have is an opportunity for us to find happiness. Maybe the same type of happiness that we had this last year because this last year was a great year. And maybe this last year wasn't a great year, and we're hoping that this next year will be a little happier than this last year was. But at the end of the day, we're all hoping in whatever way, whatever resolutions we're making, that we're going to find some contentment and some satisfaction and some happiness. Because we all want to be happy, right? I mean, we do. I mean, for some of us, some of you are like, oh, I don't know, that doesn't quite sound right. I don't know, is that okay to to say that we all want to be happy, that we all really ultimately are on a happiness quest. We're just kind of torn because that doesn't, maybe doesn't quite sound right. But let's look at it from the other side. How many of us are hoping this next year to be unhappy, right? So I think it's pretty okay for us to say that we all are hoping to be happy this new year because certainly we don't want to be unhappy, I was uh, reading an article recently in, uh, by Andy Stanley, and he was referring back to a message that he had written a number of years before, about five years ago or something like that. And in that message and in this article, he was referring to something that he believes, and he was actually making that statement that he believes that we as Americans, we as Westerners, maybe even we as the church, are more on a happiness quest than we are on a truth quest. And this was his point. He said that so much are we on a happiness quest that when truth kind of impedes our happiness, we will choose happiness over truth a lot of times. And it's true because we want so badly to be happy. So the important question for us, if that's true, if we're on a happiness quest and if that's okay, then the question that we have to answer, the questions is, what is happiness Where does it come from, and how do I get some of it, right? What is happiness? Where does it come from, and how do I get some of it? Well, if we're going to answer that question, I think we should find the truth of that question. And so in order to do that, I think it would be wise for us to look into the Scriptures, right? So we're going to take a look in this very first day of January 2017 at the book of Ecclesiastes. Aren't you excited? The book of Ecclesiastes. Some of you are going like, I didn't even know that was a book. (laughs) I don't even, and I certainly don't know where to find it. So if you go to the book of Psalms and you hang a right, it's a couple of uh, books over from there, right past Proverbs that Solomon also wrote, and then Ecclesiastes. Or you can look on your device. But I want you to look at a couple of verses, and I hope that you'll look for them yourselves on your device or, or on, in your Bible, because I hope that in the future you'll want to come back to these just for your own encouragement. So the person who wrote Ecclesiastes is this guy by the name of Solomon. And I think it would be good for us to take uh, a, a little advice for him to listen to what he has to say about happiness, because he has a lot to say about it. Because Solomon was... A palace rat. And what I mean by that was he was a king's kid. He was King David's son. And so he grew up in the palace. 
So as a young man growing up in the palace, he had just everything that there would be to have as a child. He had everything. Everything that there was to have. Everything that there was to experience. He probably had it. If it was available in that culture and in that day, he had experienced it. He was a palace rat. And then this palace rat became the palace king. Because when he finally grew up and David passed on the throne, he passed it on to this son, Solomon. And so by his own confession, he's been there and he's done that. He's sought all of these things throughout his whole life. By his own confession, he has more money, he has more stuff, he has more wives, he has everything. He has been there and he has done that. And he has a lot to say to us about where joy comes from, about where happiness comes from. So let's take a look at what he had to say. Ecclesiastes chapter 11 Verse 9. Listen to what he says. I'm reading from the ESV, and it says, Rejoice. Maybe your translation actually says, Be happy. But he said, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. And we're all like, Yes and amen. <laughs> We love that, right? So far, we're completely on board. Solomon says, while you're young, while you're vibrant, while you have a lot of energy, chase whatever your heart wants and whatever your eyes see. Go after it. Chase it with all of your energy and all you've got while you're still young and you can still do it. And we're all like, I'll dig it. I like that so far. I like this guy, Solomon. He's cool. I like him. He gets me. But Solomon's not done. He's not done. And you knew it, didn't you? He says, rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Ah, right? Right? It was sounding so good. Follow your heart. Whatever your eyes see, whatever vision you have for what you want to see and what you want to experience and what you want to build, follow your dreams, follow your vision. We love that. But then he says, but whatever you decide to do, you're going to be judged for it. And, man, we just cringe inside at that, don't we? Because we don't like judgment. Generally speaking, we don't like, ju- we don't like to be told what to do. Listen to what Solomon says because he's not done yet. Verse 10. He says, remove vexation or anxiety from your heart and put away pain from your body. For youth and the dawn of life are vanity or meaningless. I love how sarcastic he is. He's like, go ahead. Chase your heart. Chase whatever vision, whatever your eyes see, go after it. And try to remove all of the worry from your heart. Go ahead. You know, remove the pain from your, your life. And, and let, me, uh, let me know how that goes for you. He's just so sarcastic because he says at the end, you're probably going to find out like I have that it's meaningless. And here's what I think is going on. I think Solomon is at the end of his life and he's looking back and he's just kind of reflecting on his life. Most scholars agree that Solomon probably wrote the Song of Solomon, which is one of the three books that he wrote when he was young or younger. Then he wrote the part of, of, of Proverbs that he wrote probably in his midlife. 
And so he's probably at the end of, of his life and, and he's looking back over his life and he is seeing the ways that he has spent his time and his energy and he's having a bit of reflection and he's saying, I've done there, I, I've been there, I've done that, I've tried it. And I think what you're going to find out is that God is going to judge you for how you choose to spend your energy and life is too. Because you're going to come to the end of your life and you're going to find out that it's meaningless. It's meaningless. So look where he goes next. In the very next chapter, verse 1. He says, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. That's hard for us, isn't it? It's hard for us to imagine Waking up in the morning and just saying, you know, I would just rather not go about this day. I wish I would have never woke up because I can't imagine there being any happiness in this day for me. That's hard for us to imagine because we're so young. We're a a young congregation. That's hard for us to imagine. But Solomon says, remember your creator before that happens. Look at what he says in verse 2. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain and in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and he's referring to your hands trembling because you can no longer take care of your house. It says the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they're few. He's talking about our teeth falling out. And those who look through the windows are dimmed, referring to our eyes. And the doors on the street are shut, referring to our ears. When the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low, they're afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. What's he talking about there? He's talking about living in fear because the speed of life scares you to death. The almond tree blossoms or turns gray. The grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home. And the mourners go about the streets. And so before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel is broken at the cistern and the dust returns from the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, he says. All is meaningless. Here's what's going on. Solomon, if you read much of Ecclesiastes, if you read uh, Proverbs, or if you read uh, uh, the books that he wrote, what you'll see is that Solomon doesn't usually mince words. When he's got something to say, he just says it. And he has a message for us. He has a warning for us. He said, take it from me. I have tried it all. I've been there. I've done it. If there was something to be had, if there was an experience to be found, I've done all of that. And I've come to the end of my life. And I've learned a few things. And what I have learned is is if you spend your life the way that I've spent my life, if you look for happiness the way that I looked for happiness, you're going to find yourself with a tremendous amount of disappointment and regret. Because you're going to look back on it when your hands are trembling and your eyes can barely see and your ears are nearly deaf. And you're going to say, man, it was all just so disappointing. It was all just so 
meaningless. And so Solomon has a really strong warning for us, and we've seen that. But in these verses, he also has two really important truths for us. That if we can see them and grab a hold of them and understand them, I think it can be life-changing. I think it can be one of the things that will ensure more than anything else that this next year is a happy new year. The first thing he says is rejoice. He said rejoice. Solomon told us rejoice or to be happy or to, to delight. He never said that rejoicing or delighting or being happy is wrong. He just warned us that however we choose to find that, we're going to be judged for it. Because here's what Solomon knows. Solomon knows that it's part of our DNA to want to pursue happiness. He knows it's part of the way that we're created to want to be satisfied and fulfilled and to be happy. We are made that way by the creator. Because we are made to be what? Worshippers, right? We love to worship. We love as human beings to worship. If you've ever wondered if people outside of the church worship, man, just go to any sporting event, go to any major concert, go over to Europe for goodness sakes and watch the way that they have a soccer match. It's ridiculous. Man, they worship like crazy. Why? Because we're meant to worship. We're meant to worship. The problem that Solomon says is, here is the problem that he says. He says, for us, it's not that we worship. It's that we worship the wrong things. It's not that we pursue happiness. It's that we pursue the wrong things for happiness. And and Paul knew exactly what he was talking about in his uh, book to to the Romans. In Romans chapter 1, he kind of told him, he said, look, you Romans... Your problem is the same thing that that Solomon was talking about back in Ecclesiastes because you have a tendency, you fulfill your life with things that are created while you ignore the creator. And he said, so here's what happens. Because you're pursuing things for your happiness, things that were created, you just keep going further and further and further out there to find things that are going to make you happy. You just keep going farther and farther out. And God has turned you over to a debased mind because you're infatuated with created things while you're ignoring the creator. So the first thing that Solomon says is worship, rejoice, be happy. The second thing that he says is remember. Verse 1 of chapter 12, Solomon gives us the solution to our broken worship, our misguided worship. And he simply says, remember your creator. Remember me. Remember him. And if you look in the Old Testament, if you read through the Old Testament, what you're going to find is that this is a recurring theme that God brings up over and over and over again. He says, remember me. Remember me. Remember me. Remember who I am. Remember what I've said. Maybe most importantly, remember what I've done. And so for Israel, his children in the Old Testament, here's what he said to them. He said, I want you to have a feast. In fact, I'm going to have you do four feasts throughout the year because 
I want to help you to remember. And the most significant of those was a feast of Passover, when God would, would, uh, would pass over um, his people and, and death and, and bring salvation and life to them. He said, I want you to remember what I did for you. And so there was this um, event in the Old Testament called uh, when, when, uh, when the um, Israelites were in bondage to Egypt. And they had been in bondage to Egypt for over 400 years. Over 200 of those were actually in Egypt. And they're slaves. And they're being treated horribly by the Egyptians. And so God miraculously raises up a guy by the name of Moses. And he says to Moses, he says, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh. And I want you to tell him that he needs to let my people be free. He needs to let them go. And Pharaoh has a hard heart. You remember the story. And he says, I'm not going to do it. And God says, I want you to go to him, Moses. And I want you to tell him that I'm going to plague his land in ways that he could never have imagined. Never in his wildest dreams would he ever imagine the ways that I'm going to plague him. And so he does. He brings all kinds, all kinds of crazy plagues. And with each one, Moses goes to him and says, are you going to let us be free? And Pharaoh says, no, I'm not. Pharaoh is unrelenting in his commitment to Israel's bondage. He's just not going to let him go. So this goes on and on, plague after plague after plague. Finally, God tells Moses, I want you to go to him and I want you to tell him that if he doesn't let my people be free, I'm going to send judgment to him. And it's going to be painful. It's going to be personally painful for him because I'm going to send a death angel. And that death angel is going to come over him, all of the land of Egypt and every firstborn child. And that home is going to be killed in judgment. And so, so Moses goes to Pharaoh. He tells him this. And Pharaoh's heart is so hard that he still doesn't even care. And he says, you're not leaving. You're not going. You're not going to be free. So God does what he says he's going to do. The angel of death comes over Egypt. And every firstborn child in the land of Egypt is killed. And there's death and there's mourning, and there's grieving, and there's crying, and there's wailing. But God has a plan for the Israeli children, the Israeli families. He says, here's what I want you to do so that when judgment comes, you will, be mer- you will find mercy, you will find grace, you will find salvation. He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a lamb that you've had for a while. It's important that it's a lamb that that has lived with you for a while because you need to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it is spotless and that it is perfect and that it is innocent. It has no blemish. I need you to take its life. And when you take its life, I want you to take the blood of its life and I want you to spread it over the door frames of your house. And when judgment comes... When it comes, and it's coming, you're going to find mercy. You're going to find grace. You're going to find salvation because of the blood of that innocent lamb that's given as a sacrifice for you. And I'll find it acceptable, 
and I'll pass over you. I'll pass over you. And so God instituted this feast, the feast of Passover, the feast of what would one day become Calvary. And he said, I want you to remember it. I want you to never forget it, what I did for you. Because I want you to know that you wanted freedom. You needed freedom. You were in bondage. There was nothing you could do to free yourselves. So I gave you freedom. I want you to remember what I've done. So I want you to have a feast. This feast is really, really important. I want you to have it on the 14th day of the month of Nisan in the the Jewish calendar. It's going to start at sundown on that 14th of Nisan. And it's not going to be something, it's not going to be a a meal where we're going to just do it really quickly and move on. We're going to take our time. It's going to last for hours. This meal is going to last for hours. It's going to be very rich and it's going to be very, very symbolic. Because I want you to remember who I am, what I've said, and most importantly, I want you to remember what I've done. And so, the Jewish people, once a year, would begin this Passover meal. Again, on the Thursday, the year that Christ died, 14th of Nisan, right when sun was going down. And they would gather together in a home. And God told them, I want you to have between 10 No less than 10 and no more than 20. And the reason is because there's going to be a Passover lamb that we're going to enjoy together. And when you eat that lamb, every bit of it needs to be consumed because the lamb gave all that it had for you. And so I want you to consume the entire lamb. So have between 10. So everybody gets to eat and the whole lamb is consumed. And so this meal would start with a prayer of thanksgiving. Whoever the, ho- the head of the household was or whoever the father of the family was would begin this very powerful, this very ritualistic, this very uh, meaningful prayer of, of thanksgiving. And they would pray together, everyone in the room bowing in prayer, thanking God that he provided a way of salvation to bring them out of this horrendous bondage that they were in to these people, these, these slave drivers in Egypt. So they would have a prayer of thanksgiving. And then they would pick up a glass of wine and they would share a glass of wine. There would be four of these throughout the meal. They would pick up this first glass of of wine and it was the cup of remembrance and the cup of blessing. And so they would take this first cup of wine and again, the head of the household or the the one who was um, the father of the family would begin to recite all of the blessings that they had as being the children of Israel, all the personal blessings for their family, all that they had received from the Lord throughout that last year, they would recite these things and remember them together as they would slowly enjoy this glass of wine, this cup of wine, the cup of blessing. And then they would, uh, they would take some... Uh, um, so they would, the next thing that they would do is they would wash their hands and this washing of hands would be both ceremonial as well as it was practical. It was practical because they were men and women who worked with their hands. 
And so when they would come to this meal and their hands were, were full of the work of the day, and so they would take this basin and they would pour water into it. And each one of them would go around and they would wash their hands and wash the toil of the day off of their hands because they were about to eat the bread and they were about to, to eat the, the Passover lamb with their bare hands and so their hands needed to be clean. But it was not only practical, it was also symbolic. As they would wash their hands, they would ask God for forgiveness. They would ask God to cleanse their heart and to cleanse their mind, to cleanse their lives from the sin that they had committed And so it was symbolic, but it was also ceremonial, the washing of their hands. When they were done cleansing their heart and cleansing their hands, they would sing a hymn. They would sing a hymn called a Hallel and praise and adoration for who God was. It was Psalm 113 and 114. And they would all sing it together because they had done it since they were very, very young. So they all had the the hymns memorized and they would sing this hymn together and then they would take bread. And while they were taking bread, they would take a little bit of the unleavened bread and they would dip it down into a paste. And the paste was very important because it was a a paste of bitter herbs. And in this, while they were doing, they would all recount and remember the bitterness that they felt as slaves in Egypt. They would remember what their ancestors went through or what maybe early on they had experienced. And they would dip this unleavened bread down in this paste and they would just remember what life used to be before God brought salvation, before God brought hope. And then when they were done eating this bread, they would have a second cup of wine. And during this second cup, remember, they're they're not in a hurry. This is taking hours. So they would take this second cup of wine and they would recount together what all of this means. The whole thing, the whole Passover meal, this is what it's all about. Especially for the young ones, that, that this whole thing is to help us to remember what God did for us. To remember that he is our salvation. To remember that he brought us out of our slavery and into our freedom. That he brought us out of our misery into our happiness. Because he is our hope. He is our salvation. And then the culmination of the whole meal, the thing that they had been spending this whole time preparing for, and they would take the Passover lamb and they would eat it. They would eat it, each one getting their fill until the whole lamb was gone. This was the moment. This was the celebration. God had redeemed them. God had given them what they couldn't give themselves. He gave them love. He gave them hope. He gave them freedom. He brought them out of slavery. He brought them out of bondage. How? Because of this little sacrificial lamb that gave all that it had. That gave all that it had so that they could be free. And then when they were done eating the lamb, they would have another glass of wine, the third glass of wine, And then they would sing another Hallel, Psalm 15, 16, 17, and 18. They would sing it all together, every word memorized. Then they would have a fourth glass of wine together. And then the meal was done. The meal was done. All of this for one reason. All of this for one purpose. That they would remember that they would remember 
Because God's commitment to us is to help us remember. Do you remember what he said to the Philippians, what Paul said to the Philippians? It is God. It is God who works in you, both to will and to do, of his good pleasure. God is faithful to help you, to lead you to remember. That's his commitment. That's his joy. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? It's so good. The Apostle Paul was writing to the little church in Corinthians. And listen to what he said to them. He said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Paul was sharing with this young New Testament church, actually not a lot unlike our church. And he said, I'm delivering to you what I received from the Lord. He's literally saying that Jesus told me. Can you imagine this? Jesus told me about the night that he was betrayed. And he said that he took some bread and he gave thanks. Can you, have you ever thought about that? On the night he was betrayed, it wasn't as though he didn't know that he was going to be hanging on a cross by this time the next day. He knew that. But he took the bread and he took time to give thanks. To thank God for making a way. Not for him. He was the way. But for all of them. All the ones around the table all the forgetful ones all the forgetful ones thank you God for making a way for them and he took the bread and he told them what they wouldn't understand at least not yet he told them this would from this day forward represent his body which was given for them his body would be nailed and speared and thorned and beaten This was to represent his body given to them and to me and to you. When you gather like this, I want you to remember. Men, I want you to remember all of it. That I'm the lamb. I'm your joy. I'm your happiness. Men, remember this. And remember me. As you came in today, you were handed the elements of our communion. We're going to take just a few minutes to celebrate that together. If somehow you are a follower of Christ, but you didn't get those elements, if you raise your hand in just the next few minutes, well, someone from our host team will make sure that, that you have them. But I want to just say this to those of you who may be our guests, that if you have not decided to be a follower of Christ, if you've never accepted Christ as your personal Savior, then then it wouldn't make sense for you to take communion. And here's why. Because communion is a time of remembrance, and you can't remember something that you've never experienced, right? You can't remember something that you've never experienced. 
And so we will certainly understand if you just kind of don't involve yourself in this time of remembrance because it wouldn't really apply to you. Unless in this moment you said, you know what? I'm here because I'm curious. I'm here because I'm convicted that God is who he says he is, that Jesus is my Savior, and I want to accept him as my personal Savior. And all you have to do is just ask him to forgive you for your sins and to be your Savior. And this is the moment that you'll be celebrating. This is that moment that you'll be remembering. So here's what I want us to do. Reflecting on what the the very first Passover meal, which is where we get the whole thing of our communion. I want to just give us a chance to take a few minutes and just thank the Lord privately, just between you and the Lord. Thank him for being your Passover, for shedding his blood, for giving his body that was broken for you. Maybe it's a time when you need to ask God for forgiveness. Maybe there's something in your heart that you just need to confess. I'm just going to give you a minute or so. And then we'll eat this element of bread together. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for being our Passover. Thank you for being what we could not be for ourselves. Thank you for relieving us of judgment and giving us a hope for happiness. Thank you for reminding us. Thank you for taking on the personal responsibility to convict us in our heart to remember what you've done. And so with this bread, we remember that your body was broken, that your body was given for us. And so we do this in remembrance of you. Let's take together. And then Jesus told Paul about taking a cup. He took the cup and he held it up saying, men, men, we have drank from this cup for many, many years. But today it's going to be different. Today, it's not about the blood of a lamb that we watched to be born and live in our home that was perfect and innocent. Men, that was before. But from this day forward, this cup represents a new lamb, a different lamb, still innocent, still perfect. But this one is not a picture. This one is the real thing. I am the real thing. This represents my blood that by this time tomorrow night will be shed for each of you and for the sin of the world. So do this in remembrance of me. So let's take the juice together. Oh, Father God, thank you. Thank you for the blood that's been shed for the remission of our sin. Thank you, God, that the blood of Christ that satisfied you was spread on the mercy seat that you would find us acceptable in your sight. So in remembrance, we have drank this juice 
representing the blood of Christ that was shed for us. Thank you, God, for allowing us to remember his shed blood. And God, that our happiness is found in our worship. Our happiness is found in pursuing you with all of our heart. God, that's what worship is. That's what happiness is. And it's found in you. And the way, Father, that we have it is to remember. And so this year, this year, God, we ask as a congregation, we plead with you, God, to help us to remember, to help us come back time and time and time again to remember that you are our happiness. You are our happiness. It's found in you. We'll love you for that. We'll celebrate it together in Jesus' name. And let's all say together, amen, amen.